The following presentation is brought to you by the Realm Network. Buzz Burbank, news and comment. Donald Trump will not go quietly. This is Thursday, March 7th, 2019. Thank you for supporting independent news by patronizing my sponsors and through the PayPal donate button at buzzburbank.com. Just for a moment, rewind to 2016. The election was drawing closer, and it appeared Donald Trump would lose. Even he thought so. For weeks on end, this losing candidate made false claims about election fraud. And he said that if he lost, this non-existent voter fraud would be the reason. People began to wonder if he would take no for an answer. They began to wonder if he would accept the results of the 2016 election. Ohio, on October 20, 2016, he said, quote, I would like to promise and pledge to all my voters and supporters and to all the people of the United States that I will totally accept the results of this great and historic presidential election. If I win. After he won the Electoral College but lost the popular vote by nearly three million, he tweeted, I won the popular vote if you deduct the millions of people who voted illegally. That, of course, did not happen in 2016 or ever. Not even Trump's own commission could find evidence of voter fraud because it does not exist. But on Election Day 2016, Trump told Fox News it's largely a rigged system, adding similar untrue claims. It was pretty clear that Trump doesn't acknowledge the legitimacy of our election process despite the truth. Fast forward to the present. On Tuesday of this week, the president suggested that Democrats cannot beat him fairly in 2020, indicating he might judge that election to be illegitimate. They know they cannot legitimately win, he tweeted. That comes on the heels of Michael Cohen's chilling closing statement under oath before the House Oversight Committee. Quote, Given my experience working for Mr. Trump, I fear that if he loses the election in 2020, that there will never be a peaceful transition of power. And this is why I agreed to appear before you today. Just as people had wondered in 2016 about Trump refusing to accept defeat today in 2019, they wonder whether he would leave office peacefully. As peaceful as transitions of power have been since the very first one in 1801. A Georgetown University law professor tells the Washington Post he recommends that our military leaders be asked to commit in their regular sworn testimony to Congress to assist in the peaceful transition of power. Today, in 2019, Americans have clues that Donald Trump will not go quietly. The squealing has already begun, and Trump's base is eating it up. Last week may have been the worst week a president's ever had, and there are reasons to think this president has even worse weeks ahead. So he lashed out. There was the incredibly damaging Cohen testimony. The House rejecting his emergency declaration and the Senate about to do the same now, apparently. Even his Republican senators turned against him on the border wall emergency. The Senate vote comes next week. The Vietnam trip failed to strike any deal with North Korea's Kim Jong-un and further elevated Kim on the world stage and maybe worse. More about that later. Trump did not return with the victory he needed, failed to move closer to nuclear disarmament and blamed Michael Cohen and House Democrats for the mission's failure. Trump offended millions when he said he believed Kim's claim that Kim knew nothing about the torture that led to the death of American Otto Warmbier. 
as he had defended and believed Putin, as he had defended and believed the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, Trump had defended and believed Kim Jong-un while refusing to believe anyone but himself and the purported pundits at Fox News. There was the report the president had ordered that his son-in-law, Jared Kushner, be given top-secret clearance, even though intelligence officials warned that Kushner poses a security risk. We have since learned the president also ordered security clearance for his daughter, Ivanka, also against the advice of career security personnel. More about that a little later. And then there were the first in a series of growing and spreading investigations on Capitol Hill. Democrats restoring constitutional checks and balances by providing the oversight that lawmakers are constitutionally required to provide. It was a bad week for any president, especially this one. Caught up on his rest after an unhelpful trip halfway around the world, Trump tweeted attacks on his former fix-it lawyer, Michael Cohen. Fired up after the Cohen testimony, Trump appeared at the annual CPAC convention, where conservatives gathered to energize, bond, and strategize. He was so fired up, he said he was veering off script, even though there was no script. Extending his speech to two hours, two minutes, and 17 seconds. It was the longest speech of his presidency. It was the longest speech of any presidency, breaking the record set by William Henry Harrison in 1841. It was, as a matter of course, filled with falsehoods, ten of which he'd spread before. New ones include claiming the Green New Deal from Democrats would lead to no energy or electricity, and that Democrats voted to execute babies who survive abortion, which, by the way, Almost never happens, babies surviving abortion. Most notably, Trump was attacking the arm of American law enforcement that's investigating his 2016 election campaign's apparent coordination with Russia on Saturday in Maryland. We're waiting for a report by people who weren't elected, said Trump, calling special counsel Robert Mueller and former FBI director James Comey best friends. Trump's attack on Mueller continued in his harshest, most threatening attack on the special counsel to date. Unfortunately, you put the wrong people in a couple of positions and they leave people for a long time that shouldn't be there and all of a sudden they're trying to take you out with bullshit, okay? And then he added, Robert Mueller never received a vote and neither did the person who appointed him. Which, by the way, was former Attorney General Jeff Sessions, whose southern accent Trump then mocked. Lest anyone's forgotten, goofy, mocking impressions of people you don't like is considered not becoming to the leader of the free world. Nor is it normal for a president to publicly use barnyard epithets, lest anyone forget this is not normal. He even got them chanting, lock her up again, about Hillary Clinton. He was feeling loose Saturday at CPAC, safe and surrounded again by fawning people in red Trump shirts and hats and eager to show them how strong he is after a week of failure, a week of damage and scandal that would have brought down any other president. Perspiration glistened on his forehead as he rambled and lashed out at climate-defending Democrats, performing a playlet in which a couple discusses whether they can watch TV anymore since the wind isn't blowing. The crowd cheered again. Clearly targeting congressional Democrats who are Muslim, he said, hate our country. We can name every one of them if we want, said Trump. It's very sad, he said, when I see some of the statements being made. It's very, very sad. And I find out how did they do in their country? Just ask that question. Somebody would say that's a terrible thing that he brings up, but that's okay. I don't mind. I'll bring it up. How did they do in their country? Not so good. Not so good. End quote. 
This is how I got elected, by going off script, said Trump, adding, and if we don't go off script, our country's in big trouble, folks, because we have to get it back. Again, there was no script. He was ranting. He was rambling. He was incoherent. A CNN analyst said Trump was behaving, quote, like a mental patient in the CPAC speech. Washington Post columnist Eugene Robinson called it insane, rambling nonsense. This is not normal, and this is deeply concerning. The man whose party controls the White House, the Senate, and the Supreme Court wants to take his country back. It was not just Trump's longest speech. It was his strangest, described as bizarre, an unhinged rant. Back from his trip, a damaged president bared his claws, indicating Donald Trump will not go quietly. And there will be more to squeal about. I don't think I've seen anything so devastating to a president, says a Minnesota poli-sci professor who adds, it only gets worse for Trump in the investigations. Ah, the investigations. In addition to things they are or will investigate anyway, Democrats got new leads in the Michael Cohen testimony last week and this week. Lots of new leads, despite how inconsequential you may have heard the Cohen testimony was. Cohen that day became the first Trump associate to say Trump knew in 2016 that his eldest son, Don Jr., was meeting with Russians promising dirt on Clinton. Cohen was the first to claim that Trump knew WikiLeaks would release Democratic emails that had been stolen by Russian hackers. And it was Michael Cohen who indicated that special counsel Robert Mueller may have proof. Cohen also dragged Don Jr. into Trump's apparent criminal conspiracy to violate campaign finance laws in the once-secret hush money to Stormy Daniels, a deal that was discussed by the sitting president in the Oval Office where he wrote the checks. Cohen says Trump specifically directed him to say that the president knew nothing about any of this, a false claim that Trump himself had made publicly. Cohen claims Trump directed him to commit the campaign finance crimes, which means Trump could be arrested by the state of New York the minute he leaves office. His son Don Jr. could be charged now. Cohen said he knew of more law-breaking by the president that he could not discuss publicly because it is under investigation by the Southern District of New York. Michael Cohen also said in that public testimony that he could not discuss that last conversation he had with the president because of the investigation. That prompted the House and Senate committees to question Cohen behind closed doors about whether that last conversation had anything to do with a presidential pardon. Should Cohen say assist in the obstruction of justice. They asked if a pardon was a topic with anyone, not just the president. Publicly, all Cohen has said is that he never asked for one and that he would not accept one. But behind closed doors, Cohen may have revealed he knows more than what he's said or hasn't said publicly. All we've heard about Cohen's answer to this is from his lawyer, Lanny Davis, who said his client's closed-door testimony was possibly game-changing evidence of the obstruction of justice. Quoting Davis, it's pretty explosive. In his public testimony, Michael Cohen had also left a roadmap for Congress where top Democrats don't believe the public is ready to hear the word impeachment. The first rule of impeachment club apparently is don't talk about impeachment club. The Democrats' plan is to first make a case for impeachment with a series of hearings to expose corruption in all things Trump and into places Robert Mueller is not allowed to reach. 
On Monday of this week, the House Judiciary Committee launched an investigation into possible abuse of power by this president and whether he has obstructed justice. Both are potential grounds for impeachment, and Judiciary is the only committee in Congress that can launch impeachment hearings. And its chairman, Jerry Nadler, who Trump has foolishly nicknamed Fat Jerry. But first things first. The committee immediately demanded documents from 81 people and institutions connected with Donald Trump. The individuals include his sons, Eric and Don Jr., his daughter, Ivanka, her husband, Jared Kushner, and his longtime money guy, Alan Weisselberg. Former White House advisors Sean Spicer, Steve Bannon, Reince Priebus, and Hope Hicks also got letters demanding documents. So did Cambridge Analytica, Carter Page, Corey Lewandowski, The Inquirer's David Pecker, Jeff Sessions, Paul Manafort, Julian Assange, Roger Stone, the NRA, the Justice Department, the Trump campaign, and the White House, to name a few. The topics include Mike Flynn's departure and his contacts with a Russian ambassador, the Trump Tower meeting and Junior's misleading statement about it, pressure to downplay the Russia investigation, the firings and attempted firings of Justice Department officials, interference with former Acting Attorney General Matt Whitaker and the prosecutor's office in the Southern District of New York, discussions of pardons for Manafort, Flynn, and Cohen, Cohen's hush money payments, his recordings, and his testimony emoluments to the president, election data from WikiLeaks and Cambridge Analytica, contacts with the Saudis, the United Arab Emirates and Qatar, the NRA connection to both the Trump campaign and Russia, Paul Manafort and his associates' contacts with Russia, the Russian financing of Donald Trump and Jared Kushner, the mysterious ease-up on Russia in the 2016 GOP platform, the secret meetings between Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin in 2017 and 2018 and more. House Judiciary Committee Chairman Jerry Nadler says many of the 81 individuals and entities from whom documents were requested are complying with these requests. Evidence that's new to the committee is now pouring in, including evidence collected by the FBI and other federal prosecutors. Nadler says he requested only documents that have already been provided to other agencies, reducing the chances that anyone would say no. But Trump and the White House have indicated they might not provide the documents requested. Trump calling the request a political sideshow, game-playing, and a disgrace to our country. If the White House refuses, that will set off a court battle with Congress in a constitutional case of push versus shove. A wide net was cast by the Judiciary Committee to cover a wider area than the Mueller probe, investigating almost every aspect of Trump's public life, his business, his campaign, his transition, and his presidency. Almost everyone in Trump's world has just become a witness. House Democrats may not be talking publicly yet about impeachment, but they're laying the groundwork for a doozy. Still, Democrats in Congress believe the Mueller report will do the most to help their case for impeachment. But thanks to Michael Cohen, the Democratic-led investigations have multiplied with new avenues to explore, new witnesses to question. Since the day of his televised testimony, Cohen has testified two more times for the House Intelligence Committee behind closed doors. The first Q&A session, the very next day, lasted eight hours and ended with Cohen promising to bring some documents to corroborate the claims he'd made. The follow-up hearing in which Cohen would bring those documents and more was yesterday. 
It was his fourth congressional testimony in nine days. Cohen and his lawyers rolled a handful of suitcases into the closed-door hearing, apparently to back up claims he had made in previous testimony, including his public session. Those suitcases were presumably full of documents. Among the documents Cohen brought, possible evidence that White House lawyers, including Jay Sekulow, made changes to Cohen's previous false statements to Congress. Efforts to influence a witness or their testimony is illegal obstruction of justice. Cohen also insisted that a presidential pardon was dangled before him. Cohen says after the FBI raid on his office, he was contacted by two lawyers who claimed to be connected to Trump's TV lawyer, Rudy Giuliani. Cohen says the men were reaching out to Cohen to try to keep him inside Trump's circle, trying to get him not to testify against the president. Giuliani now admits that several people investigated by the Justice Department have asked about pardons and admission that Team Trump has discussed pardons with people who could help protect the president. Giuliani has spilled the beans again. Cohen also yesterday gave lawmakers documents that supposedly back his claim that Trump knew that his Trump Tower Moscow efforts had continued well into the campaign and that Trump had lied to the voters about that. Democrats are pleased with Cohen's cooperation. Adam Schiff saying Cohen answered every question that was put to him. Yesterday was likely Cohen's last day of congressional testimony. He's scheduled to report to prison in May to begin a three-year sentence unless his ongoing complete cooperation somehow gets his sentence reduced further. Former Trump campaign manager Paul Manafort will be sentenced likely to life in prison today for his financial crimes. That's at 3.30 this afternoon, Eastern Standard Time. As for the new witnesses pointed out by Cohen, Elijah Cummings' House Oversight Committee may call Trump's son, Don Jr., and his eldest daughter, Ivanka, as well as longtime Trump accountant, Alan Weisselberg. Cohen says Jr. and Ivanka were briefed about 10 times on the Trump Tower Moscow project. Cohen had dropped all those names and more, and he mentioned Weiselberg in that public testimony 20 times. Cohen said Weiselberg was also involved in the Stormy Daniels campaign finance scheme. Cohen says he paid the porn star, but says it was Weiselberg's idea to break up the reimbursement so it would look like a monthly legal retainer. Weiselberg has, for some time now, also been cooperating with federal investigators in exchange for complete immunity from prosecution. And now the House Oversight and Intelligence Committees want to also hear from Weisselberg, who knew at age 14 he wanted to be an accountant. Weisselberg's been called the embodiment of an accountant living 50 years in a modest ranch-style house on Long Island. Trump allies have written that not a dime left the Trump organization without Weisselberg's knowledge. Cohen testified that Weisselberg was also in on the tax fraud and insurance fraud with numbers that were inflated or deflated beyond reality. New York State insurance regulators have already subpoenaed documents from the Trump Organization's insurance broker based on the testimony of Michael Cohen. Alan Weisselberg has been the Trump family lawyer for 40 years after starting with the president's dad, Fred and now the House Intelligence Committee also wants to ask this accountant's accountant if there's evidence that foreign actors have somehow blackmailed, compromised, or demonstrated any kind of leverage over Trump or members of his family. The investigations mount and grow and spread.
Oversight Chairman Cummings says his committee has poured over the transcript of Cohen's public testimony and wants every name in that testimony to be called to testify. And Cummings says his committee wants every document that Cohen mentioned that day. Apparently, Cohen has now brought those documents. The committee also wants to hear from three Trump Organization executives, Ron Lieberman, Alan Garten, and Matthew Calamari. Oversight also wants to hear from two lawyers who handled Trump's taxes, one of whom now advises the Trump administration on dealing with House investigations. The Ways and Means Committee is already requesting the past 10 years of Trump's tax returns from the IRS. There may be resistance. Trump's Treasury Secretary, Stephen Mnuchin, makes the ultimate decision as to whether the IRS will comply with that request. But the Democrats on the powerful Ways and Means Committee say they will take all necessary steps to finally get the tax returns that Trump has suspiciously kept hidden, unlike any other modern president. Ways and Means appears to have the backing of the Oversight Committee, the Financial Reform Committee, the Judiciary Committee, and the House Intelligence Committee. But only Ways and Means is allowed to make this particular request. And its chairman, Richard Neal, says he might wait to file the request until after the completion of the Mueller report, which is still considered eminent. Michael Cohen had testified publicly that Trump called the government stupid for giving him a $10 million tax refund in 2008. Republicans on the House Oversight Committee made it clear from the start of Cohen's public testimony what their strategy would be. Republican lawmakers would not question Cohen about any possible wrongdoing on Trump's part, constantly referring to the president without ever once speaking his name. The Republican members would not offer up a defense for the president. What they did at nearly every turn was paint Michael Cohen as a liar. Cohen had lied to Congress before and was criminally charged for it. Why should he be believed now? Liar, liar, pants on fire, taunted one Republican in another bizarre moment for the history books. There was a poster in the room with that same schoolyard taunt brought by the Republicans as a visual aid that also served as a nationwide TV billboard for the concept they were trying to sell. They may have hoped no one would notice that the lies Cohen got caught telling were in defense of their president, an effort to help cover up for their president. Those were the lies. The thing they were calling Cohen's lie was that their president was innocent. Now that he's been caught and come clean, Cohen says Trump is not innocent, which Republicans claim is a lie from a man who now has everything to lose if he does lie and a lot to gain if he tells the truth. At the end of the day, the untrustworthy Michael Cohen appeared more trustworthy than the men calling him a liar. And it was a hearing that would never have occurred if Democrats had not won the midterm elections. Democrats on the Oversight Committee, especially the new progressives swept in by that blue wave, asked questions of Cohen with surgical precision. Some of them stumbled for the first time into congressional rules. But it was a question by New York's Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez that prompted Cohen to say that Trump had given insurance companies false information to exaggerate his wealth and she got Cohen to name three names in connection with that apparent fraud. She asked if it would be a good idea for Congress to look into Trump's tax returns to verify Cohen's story. He said it would. 
California's Katie Hill, who'd won her seat away from a Republican, asked some of the best questions. And Harley Rauda Jr., who replaced a Republican from Orange County, California, asked about Felix Sater, the criminal business associate also involved in the Trump Tower Moscow project that Trump had denied during the campaign. Rauda asked if Trump had lied under oath in a deposition in 2013 when he said he would not recognize Felix Sater if he saw him. Yes, said Michael Cohen. Trump was lying. Republicans had come to the public hearing that day united in painting Cohen as a liar. Democrats, especially the newcomers, came to ask questions. It was mid-July 2016 when Cohen says Trump got a call from longtime advisor Roger Stone alerting him that WikiLeaks would, within days, release a bunch of emails that would damage Hillary Clinton. Trump replied, wouldn't that be great, says Cohen. Days later, within an hour of the bombshell Access Hollywood video, WikiLeaks dumped those emails. If Cohen's under oath claim about that call is true, Trump has not only lied to the public about having advanced knowledge of the dump, but he would have then also lied in his written answers to special counsel Robert Mueller. Trump now says he was just being comically sarcastic when he publicly called on Russia to release Hillary's emails. He says he was just joking. But court filings and public documents and public comments gathered by CNN show that some members of Team Trump were dead serious about accepting help from Russia in 2016. Don Jr., in that Trump Tower meeting, he couldn't wait to have Roger Stone's contacts with WikiLeaks, just two of the apparent efforts to get Russian help for the struggling Trump campaign. Michael Cohen's date with the slam of a prison door is due in May. It would seem that at this point he is telling the truth in his quest for redemption and or a lighter prison sentence. He knows that lying means he'll just have to do more time away from his family. The largest segment of Americans think so. A new Quinnipiac poll shows that nearly half believe Michael Cohen over Donald Trump. Pluralities believe that Trump is a liar who has committed crimes before and since he took office. A new Monmouth poll shows 42% of us believe Trump should be impeached. That's up from 36% in November. Cohen, meanwhile, has cooperated with Mueller's investigators seven times, and they have high praise for his information, which they found to not only be credible, but valuable. The indictment of Roger Stone accuses him of speaking to Trump on multiple occasions about the timing of the WikiLeaks dump. At least two former WikiLeaks employees are now cooperating with U.S. investigators working on that case. And about the Roger Stone case. District Judge Amy Berman Jackson is firm, but more than fair. She did not jail Stone after all, even though she could have after he'd violated a limited gag order by posting on Instagram a photo of the judge with a gun sight near her head and calling his a show trial. The judge made it clear she didn't believe Stone's apology, but instead of jail, she expanded his gag order. He could now no longer speak publicly about his case in any forum. He could speak publicly about other things, but not his case. Then came word that Stone had a book coming out, a book that could violate this new stricter gag order. So on Friday, Judge Jackson demanded Stone's lawyers explain how the book won't violate the gag order. They were back in court this week over that. Still, 
No jail for Roger Stone. Just another stern reminder. His second warning. But on Sunday, Roger Stone was back on Instagram with a meme in the style of a movie poster for Who Framed Roger Rabbit. The graphic had been modified to read Who Framed Roger Stone. After being ordered by a court to publicly shut up about his case, Stone posted a meme calling his case a frame job. Stone was talking publicly about his case again in a clear violation of the order issued by the judge who can put him behind bars without bail until whatever trial date is ultimately set. Stay tuned. This cannot end well for Roger Stone, even with a judge as patient as Amy Berman Jackson. And that brings us to Trump's daughter Ivanka and her husband, Jared Kushner, the president's son-in-law, both of whom are close advisors to the president. While Trump was telling the public he was staying out of it, he was ordering security officials to grant top-secret clearance to Jared Kushner and clearance to his daughter Ivanka, despite warnings from those officials that both were security risks, because they might be compromised, because of their foreign business dealings, and because of Jared's repeated omissions on disclosure statements. We also learned that then-White House Chief of Staff John Kelly and then-White House Chief Counsel Don McGahn argued strongly against those clearances and put that on the record in the form of contemporaneous memos. A source tells the New York Times that first daughter Ivanka joined Jared in pressuring Trump to grant their clearances, something a president has the authority to do, even when CIA officials strongly advise against it as they did with these two. If true, the president had forced top-secret clearance for people who couldn't otherwise get it, people who shouldn't get it, and then Trump lied to the public about it through interviews with reporters. The House Intelligence and Oversight Committees, now under Democratic control, have vowed to investigate the granting of Kushner's security clearance and Ivanka's. They want to see those memos written by John Kelly and Don McGahn and a whole lot more. And they have set tomorrow as the deadline for the White House to hand over those memos. The White House is now refusing to turn over those documents, inviting a subpoena and a likely court fight on this as well. Not only has Trump lied about his involvement in Kushner's clearance seven times, so perhaps has his daughter, who told ABC News last month, the president had no involvement pertaining to my clearance or my husband's clearance. Zero, she said. Politico dropped a stunning, surprising report yesterday about a second Mueller report. Not one we're expecting, but a separate report the law requires the special counsel to file. It's a report on every instance, if any, in which a superior said no to any of his requests or plans, including subpoenas and whether to indict certain people or entities. What, if anything, was Mueller not allowed to see or do. The law also says we get to see that report almost immediately. That report alone will either support Trump's claim that he has not obstructed justice, or it will support that maybe he did. Paging Matt Whitaker, the man who oversaw the Mueller probe between Jeff Sessions and William Barr, there are other grounds for obstruction charges, regardless of what we learn from this second Mueller report, but signs of interference in it would be impossible to ignore. It would be huge and likely game-changing, 
And the less Attorney General William Barr releases of the main report, the more important anything in that second report becomes. And that second report will give us new insights into the Mueller investigation as well. When the special counsel's final report is ready, this second report will come with it. And without the secrecy requirements of the main report, and without delay. How is it that Trump has remained president this long despite the preponderance of truly scandalous evidence? Two words. Fox News. That channel, posing as a news channel, is Trump's shield and his sword. The New Yorker is out this week with a blockbuster report that shows how Fox News serves as Trump's shield against scandal and his sword against those who would challenge him. The New Yorker article argues that Fox employees may have alerted Trump before a debate on that channel that Megyn Kelly was about to ask some tough questions, including about his past treatment of women and how he converted from Democrat to Republican. Even during the campaign, Fox was giving Trump a heads up. The New Yorker tells how Fox in 2016 killed the story by one of its own reporters that included proof of a sexual encounter between Trump and porn star Stormy Daniels. The reporter had a copy of the non-disclosure contract back in 2016. She even had Michael Cohen's emails about it, and Fox killed her story by passing it from one editor to the next until she was told by the then head of Fox News, good reporting, kiddo, but Rupert wants Trump to win, so just let it go. This carefully researched piece by The New Yorker's Jane Mayer explains that owner Rupert Murdoch believed Trump would be good for business at his network, a perfect fit for his white, blue-collar workers. As with Trump and the Republican Party, Trump and the Fox News Channel have become one. On Fox, it's programming tailored for him. His policies are tailored for Fox. As he, especially this week, quotes one Fox host after another, in his many wild tweets. Pew Research shows that conservative voters are closely tuned in to Fox News. It is their main source of news. They trust Fox. They don't trust CNN or The Washington Post or The New York Times or NPR. Pew says 90% of them trust Fox and Fox only, which would explain why the public opinion needle doesn't seem to budge when it comes to voter approval of Trump. The Democratic National Committee has just banned Fox from hosting any of that party's presidential primary debates. In the meantime, Trump policies fail one after the other. America first has led to an unfortunate first for America. Trump's America first trade policies, which included a trade war with China, have pushed the nation's trade deficit to more than $891 billion dollars. We are spending overseas the better part of a trillion dollars more than we are selling overseas. It's the highest trade deficit in American history. It's over $100 billion more than it was when Obama left office. The old record high deficit was set when George W. Bush left office. Halfway through Trump's term, it's nearly $900 billion. A president who's promised a booming economy, a smaller deficit, has delivered a record trade deficit, a record federal deficit, an unsteady stock market, a December with the lowest spending level in nine years, and the biggest increase in gas prices in four years. Failed policy after failed policy. 
As aggressive as it is, Trump's tough immigration policy, which has included separating children from their families, isn't working. Over 76,000 people crossed the border without papers in February, the most in 11 years, despite the new fencing and the separating of families as a deterrent. Most come through the official entrances, surrendering immediately for arrest and asking for asylum as they flee the out-of-control violence and poverty in their home countries. Trump's harsh policies have left us with more immigrants flowing into a system that's already straining at the seams to hold itself together. Processing centers are filled to capacity. Border agents are trying to keep up with the medical needs. Desperate people flowing in sometimes at the rate of more than 2,000 a day. If there is a crisis at the border, it is strictly a humanitarian one for which we have not prepared ourselves, focusing instead on toughness and a wall. Two days after the meeting with Kim Jong-un, in which Trump failed to advance a nuclear treaty, elevated Kim, and insulted the memory of murdered American Otto Warmbier, the U.S. intelligence satellites photographed North Korea rebuilding a missile site that's contributed to its nuclear weapons program two days after the talks. It could be a sign that Kim is about to restart missile testing, deflating Trump's claims that he had gotten North Korea to stop those tests. The North did start to dismantle the site after Trump met with South Korea's president back in September. Kim even offered, or said he was offering, to let American experts watch the destruction. But something's changed since Kim and Trump met last week in Vietnam in those talks that ended so abruptly. American diplomats and military and intelligence people who've dealt with North Korea over the years are not surprised that absolutely no progress has been made with North Korea. It's always been that way. But they worry that perhaps this president has made things worse. The U.S. now has a plan for getting out of Afghanistan, our longest war ever after more than 17 years. The plan involves peace talks with the Taliban and removes all U.S. troops from Afghanistan in five, maybe even three years. It leaves control of that country shared by the current Afghan government and the Taliban. The number of American troops there would be cut in half over the next several months, and it would cut the American mission to airstrikes against al-Qaeda and ISIS only. NATO, our allies, like this plan, and the U.S. is now working with our allies on the details. U.S. officials are also warning our allies that Trump could change his mind at any time. The National Security Agency has stopped analyzing Americans' phone logs, stopped keeping records on the calls and texts of millions of innocent people as part of a program launched after the 9-11 attacks. The program was quietly shut down by the NSA six months ago, and the Trump administration is not expected to ask that it be continued. President George W. Bush launched the secret program with an executive order, the program ultimately exposed by former intelligence contractor Edward Snowden 12 years later. The program never prevented a single terror attack in all those years, and there hasn't been one since the program ended either. It is almost a year now since Sacramento police fired 20 shots at a man holding a cell phone in his parents' backyard as they investigated the report of vandalism. The unarmed Stefan Clark did not survive the rain of bullets shot seven or eight times with three to six wounds in his back, depending on which autopsy you believe. This week, we learned that the officers who fired at Stefan from 30 feet away will not face criminal charges of any kind. Sacramento County's district attorney says Stefan Clark was a troubled young man who'd had problems with his fiancée. 
Clark's mother says that doesn't have anything to do with the police killing of an unarmed black man on a vandalism call. Quoting her, it's not about anything before that. It's about the officers who murdered him. There were many things weighing heavily on his mind, said his mother, adding, that's not a permit to kill him. Monday night in Sacramento, 84 people were arrested in a protest against police brutality. Police handcuffed at least three members of the clergy and a reporter from the local newspaper. In recent weeks, I encouraged you to patronize the new independent local newspapers popping up online, created by real journalists who lost their jobs to newspaper budget cuts. But as always, buyer beware. This week, instead of his usual commentary, Salon.com's Bob Seska is here with a tutorial on how to spot fake news and avoid it. Because it's back. Bob? Thank you, Buzz. The great fact-checking site Snopes has uncovered evidence indicating that conservative operatives are launching fake local newspaper websites in order to potentially target social media users in advance of the 2020 elections, featuring names like the Tennessee Star, the Minnesota Sun, and the Ohio Star newspaper. These sites appear almost completely authentic, going so far as to feature local weather and advertisements, in addition to links to, for example, the Coke-backed Americans for Prosperity. Google searches for the sites include keywords like local newspaper and unbiased Well, uh, they're neither. To call this a dirty trick would be generous. This is an attack on the American public and our frustrating inability to immediately distinguish between real news and fake news. By the way, Trump likes to call real news fake news for the purposes of this commentary. When I refer to fake news, I'm talking about actual fake news, not Trump's bastardization of the term. Snopes identified the activists who launched the sites as Michael Patrick Leahy, Steve Gill, and Christina Boteri, three Tea Party-connected operatives. According to Snopes, the trio founded Star News Digital Media, Inc., whose explicit strategy is to target battleground states with conservative news. This raises a crucial point as the 2020 campaign season ramps up. How can we correctly identify possible fake news before we haplessly retweet it or share it on Facebook? Frankly, knowing the latest strategy to package fake news into real-life local news sites will make the effort to weed it out even more challenging. I imagine trolls and bots will improve their disguises this time around, too, until they're indistinguishable from real social media users. Remember, the social media front of Russia's 2016 attack was aided unwittingly by American citizens who rushed to spread the anti-Clinton agitprop throughout social media. This can't be allowed to happen again. There are key tells to watch for. These hints might not be 100% foolproof as indicators of fake news, but if you spot any of these indicators, there's a good chance you've landed on fake news. Number one, the headline is too good or bad to be true. The fake news that circulated the internet in 2016 usually featured headlines that were too good to pass up. If your first reaction is, what? Then there's a chance it's a sensationalized item, if not a completely fake one. Nevertheless, your best bet is to do some further probing before clicking share. The first thing you should do is to, number two, check the source. Most fake news sites give themselves away just with the domain name alone. Fake news sites usually have bizarre domains, and you really shouldn't be sharing any links that aren't from reputable blogs and top-shelf news outlets anyway. On Facebook, the domain name appears just above the headline in all caps, gray text. If you don't immediately recognize the domain name, 
don't share it until you've investigated further. And if the name seems hinky and unfamiliar, more investigation is required before sharing. So the next step is to number three, check the byline and dateline. If there's no author or the author uses an obvious fake name, it might be a fake news article and shouldn't be shared. If the date is old, it might not have any bearing on current events and is being shared only to stir up discord on social media, one of the main goals of Russia last time, to keep us fighting. By the way, stop sharing old news. We've all done this accidentally, including me, but we should all know better by now. Anyway, if the date and byline check out, next, number four, check for sources, block quotes, and links. One gigantic tell is an article that claims to have news from another source, but doesn't link to that source, or any sources for that matter. No links means they could be hiding something. Look for text that's underlined and highlighted in blue or red. Hover your mouse pointer over the link. If it points to a legitimate site, there's a good chance it's real news. If there aren't any links, or the links go to Wikipedia or another weirdly named site, it might be fake. Other fake news articles don't cite any sources at all. I can't emphasize this enough. No links probably means fake news. Do not share articles without links to the sources. And number five, block or unfollow users who share fake news. The only way to weed out fake news is to be merciless about it. Block, unfriend, or unfollow social media users who still can't tell the difference. Additionally, and this is a big one, ask yourself whether the information you're sharing on social media came from a journalistic source or some guy on the internet. If it's some guy on the internet, the news is either fake or too anecdotal to be a legitimate indicator of a serious trend. Last time around, I'd constantly hear from people who'd approach me screaming about some sort of awfulness happening with one of the campaigns or the DNC. If their source was, I heard from a Facebook friend about blah, 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 I disregard it immediately. Some guy on the internet can't be trusted. Not anymore. Now, you might be saying to yourself, wow, that's a lot of work to do before sharing a link. Well, damn right it is. This is our democracy at stake, and it's being stolen from us by professional con men and the Russian military intelligence service, the GRU, the agency responsible for the 2016 attack. But it's not those perps alone. As I mentioned, our laziness on social media made us unwitting foot soldiers in that attack. Laconic, knee-jerk sharing played a significant role in electing Donald Trump. Re-electing him via similar laziness should be out of the question. Not again. It might take more of your time, but it's valuable time spent to prevent another electoral disaster. Good luck and Godspeed. I'm Bob Seska for Buzz Burbank News and Comment. Thank you, my friend. Get more of Bob with a subscription at patreon.com slash Show, or Tuesdays and Thursdays at realmnetwork.com. Bob will be back with a fresh show this afternoon. I join Bob on his show every Tuesday. A presidential hopeful throws his biodegradable hat into the ring. An anti-vax update. Karma wins the lottery and granny floats away in the final segment up next a programming note this podcast is now more easily available on amazon echo just say her name and start buzz burbank news 
to hear the latest episode and its predecessors. Speaking of Amazon, thank you for using my link at buzzburbank.com for all your shopping year-round at home, school, and work. Shopping through my Amazon link helps keep this newscast going and free for the listening. Please go to buzzburbank.com and click on the Amazon logo you'll see there. You land on your usual Amazon page, which you can then bookmark to replace your old Amazon bookmark. Once you've done that, I get a small commission from Amazon for every purchase you make and for every Amazon Prime membership purchased through me, so it really helps power this free weekly report. I am a huge fan of Amazon Prime Music through a streaming device on my TV that shows not just the title and artist and artwork and photographs, but the lyrics. You can have that too with a Prime membership, and you can boost independent journalism in the process at no extra charge by getting that membership through me. On your desktop browser, my Amazon logo is in the upper right corner at buzzburbank.com. On your phone, it's just under the title Buzz Burbank News and Comment. If you'd rather not use my Amazon link, then please support this free independent reporting through the PayPal donate button that's right there. Thank you for those things and for spreading the word about this effort. Rather than reporting on the new names added to the list of those running in the 2020 Democratic presidential primary, this is about three big names who announced this week they are not running. New York billionaire Michael Bloomberg says he will not run, as some thought he might. Former U.S. Attorney General Eric Holder, who was expected to run, now says he won't. And since someone did ask, former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton announced she will not run in 2020. All three, Bloomberg, Holder, and Clinton, say they will instead campaign for the Democrat who emerges as the frontrunner and for Democrats in general. One of the hats in the pile of hats tossed into the ring is former Washington Governor Jay Inslee, who calls climate change the most pressing issue of our time and the most critical issue the next president will have to address. And there's a new political action committee to help Ensley be the next president, despite the tremendous odds against him. It's a super PAC called Act Now on Climate, and with help from the Al Gore camp, it intends to raise and spend tens of millions of dollars to elect Governor Inslee. The PAC says it will not accept money from corporations and that it will publicly disclose all of its donors. It hopes one of those donors will be Democratic billionaire donor Tom Steyer, who would normally be so inclined. Steyer had thought about running himself in great part as the environmental choice. At the moment, Steyer is spending $40 million on a campaign to get Congress to impeach Trump. The current president, meanwhile, continues his assault on the planet by getting a coal lobbyist confirmed as the new head of the Environmental Protection Agency. Andrew Wheeler is now in place to advance the removal of environmental regulations implemented in the Obama administration and to remove regulations across the board. Among them, a loosening of the endangered species list that includes the American bald eagle to make way for oil and gas exploration. Wheeler had already been running the EPA ever since the ugly departure of his scandal-ridden predecessor, Scott Pruitt. There are 265 coal-fired power plants in the U.S. The ash that 242 of those plants produce ends up in the local groundwater, since only 5% of the plants have waterproof liners to protect the groundwater beneath them. And that ash contains poisons, arsenic, lithium, chromium, and more. An environmental group used the industry's own numbers 
and he calls this news a wake-up call for the nation about the safety of our drinking water. The 10 worst places for ash contamination in groundwater are in Pennsylvania, Maryland, North Carolina, Kentucky, Tennessee, Mississippi, Texas, Wyoming, and Utah. The EPA, now under the direction of a coal lobbyist, is working to roll back coal ash regulations instead of tightening them. Chronic clinical depression has overtaken 16 million Americans. Among the many who take antidepressants, one in four say the pills don't work. And anyone who's taken them knows they takes weeks to kick in. And for too many people, weeks is too long to wait. This week, the FDA approved a prescription nasal spray inspired by the street drug Special K. Derived from the anesthetic ketamine, this spray uses a much, much smaller dose than the one partiers took in the 80s and 90s to get high. That high frequently includes out-of-body hallucinations. This microdose does not have that effect, but instantly eases immobilizing depression. The FDA has approved this treatment because of the urgent need for it, and even though ketamine has not yet been properly tested for this use. Patients who get the prescriptions will be monitored, as it can have an undesired effect on people who are prone to psychosis. The treatment will cost around $6,000 a month. On February 22nd, a health scare went up in Chicago. A passenger had fallen ill with measles and passed through Concourse B at Chicago's Midway Airport. They were taken immediately to a nearby emergency room, that passenger, and admitted to the connecting hospital. But in the course of all that, people had been exposed. Measles spread by lingering in the air and on surfaces, sometimes for hours. People had to be warned. The people who had been through Concourse B during and for an hour or so after patient zero, everyone who'd been in that emergency room during and after patient zero had been there, people in parts of the hospital itself had to be warned as well. We don't know yet how many people will be affected. Their symptoms could appear anytime over the next two weeks. The U.S. is already in the grip of a measles outbreak with 150-some cases, 70 in Washington state, the heart of the anti-vax movement that's weakening the immunity of our herd. The World Health Organization calls vaccine hesitancy one of the world's top health concerns. The biggest study of its kind ever reports there is no connection between autism and the vaccine for measles, mumps, and rubella. The MMR vaccine, it says, does not cause autism, as claimed in false conspiracy theories across the Internet. This new study comes from Denmark, where 650,000 children were vaccinated and were monitored for 10 years. The author of the study says he does not expect to change the minds of any anti-vaxxers, but to at least counter their false claims about the vaccine on the Internet. He's right about both. This week, the young man who got vaccinated against his mother's will, Ethan Lindenberger, testified to Congress that his anti-vax mom got her false information from Facebook. Facebook told the Washington Post, we've taken steps to reduce the distribution of health-related misinformation on Facebook, but we know we have more to do. Still, the anti-vax movement stands its ground in Texas. Republican lawmakers are considering legislation to let parents more easily opt out of vaccinations for their kids. State Representative Bill Zedler is promoting that bill. 
Yeah, he said, in third world countries, they're dying of measles. Today, with antibiotics and that kind of stuff, they're not dying in America. Antibiotics do not treat or prevent measles. Science, out of reach for yet another Republican. In Arizona, they recently passed bills that allow for religious exemptions for the shots. Fortunately, the governor of Arizona says he will veto those bills. But that rankles five-term Republican state representative Kelly Townsend, who said, I read that if not enough people get vaccinated, then we're going to force them to. To which she added, the idea that we force someone to give up their liberty for the sake of the collective is not based on American values, but rather communist. The anti-vax movement is every bit as virulent and every bit as dangerous as the measles itself. It has been 12 years since American Timothy Ray Brown was cured of his HIV infection. He survived a new, difficult, and dangerous treatment and remains HIV-free a dozen years later. Only certain HIV patients qualify for the treatment. It hasn't worked in some patients. It's killed others. So for 12 years, it has not been clear whether Tim Brown had been cured by the treatment or by fluke. But it has just worked again in a second patient who, like Brown, had developed Hodgkin lymphoma and needed a stem cell transplant from the right donor. And we've just received word now of a third patient cured of this deadly virus. It's the donor that makes this procedure rare since only about 1% of people inherited a mutated gene that makes the body immune to the immune virus that causes AIDS. The wonders of humans in space continue to unfold. It had been nearly eight years since the U.S. sent astronauts into space. American astronauts have been hitching rides with Russian cosmonauts on trips to and from the International Space Station, the U.S. sending up nothing but supplies. That has changed drastically in recent weeks with NASA's help, but not on NASA vehicles. That work was contracted out to Boeing and SpaceX, who've built their own new vehicles, unlike NASA's space shuttles. Crew Dragon, a capsule from SpaceX, was launched in an unmanned test Saturday morning on a Falcon 9 rocket, also made by SpaceX. This reusable rocket fell to Earth and landed precisely on the ship at sea that was there to catch it. Reusable rockets mean cheaper space travel. Sunday morning, the capsule it had launched successfully docked with the International Space Station, and it did so automatically, without the usual help from the space station's robotic arm. Tomorrow, it's due to undock and return home, parachuting toward the Atlantic Ocean, all inside a few hours. The next flight, if all goes well, will be later this year with humans on board. Quoting a cautious NASA official, I guarantee everything will not work exactly right, and that's cool. That's exactly what we want to do. We want to maximize our learning. Last week, an odd-looking dead fish washed ashore in Southern California near UC Santa Barbara. It looked a lot like a sunfish, but it was seven feet long. It was a real hoodwinker. No, really, that's what kind of fish it is. It's called a hoodwinker. It's a species that wasn't discovered until just two years ago. And this was the first one ever spotted in North America. Soon, you may be able to make lemonade when life hands you nothing but lemons. Scientists have found the gene that makes lemons and limes sour. By expressing those genes, they found that limes and lemons have every bit as much sugar as an orange. But they also have that super sour taste. 
there was already a kind of lemon that produces both sweet and sour lemons. The purplish blossoms on a ferrous lemon tree become sour lemons. The white blossoms on a ferrous lemon tree become sweet lemons. So the research started there to find the secret of the sweet lemon. The sour lemons produce more hydrogen, which creates a sour taste when it hits the enzymes on your tongue. The percentage of purple in petunia petals played a part in the project, but it all gets very scientific after that. Suffice it to say, we may someday make lemonade without adding sugar. It wasn't noticed at first when Walmart started ditching its elderly and disabled customer greeters in favor of workers who could do more additional and more physical labor. This has not played well since the story broke late last week, and Walmart's been backpedaling ever since. The story went viral of 20-year-old Adam Caitlin, who's been greeting Walmart shoppers for the past decade despite his cerebral palsy. Despite his use of a walker, his new job would involve standing for hours and his ability to carry 25 pounds. Adam was brokenhearted, racking his brain over what other job he might be able to do at Walmart because doing this new job for him would be impossible. Walmart's CEO immediately declared that the company would meet individually with each greeter to talk about what their future roles might be. The CEOs instructed the managers to make every effort to keep those familiar greeters employed at Walmart. Adam Caitlin, 10-year greeter, is now the host and helper at the self-checkout area. Others may be as lucky. Still others may not. Family Dollar says it's closing 400 stores and turning 200 others into Dollar Trees. Family Dollar will still have over 7,000 stores appealing to low-income shoppers with most items under 10 bucks. Family Dollar is owned by Dollar Tree, which has 8,000 of its own stores in suburbs where people make more money, but nothing in those stores is over $1. Together, they're as big as competitor Dollar General, which has 15,000 stores of its own. And business is booming all the while at Five Below and Ollie's Bargain Outlet. It's not TV. It's AT&T. With the takeover of HBO by DirecTV's owner, AT&T, the network's hosts and producers and viewers are wondering how things might change now at America's favorite pay channel. There's concern that HBO will go all Netflix with its programming, perhaps favoring quantity over the historically reliable quality of HBO programming. One week ago today, that CEO who greenlit Veep, Game of Thrones, and other popular shows announced that he's leaving now that the network will be overseen by AT&T's man at Warner Media, which AT&T also owns. One very big company has taken control of a very big part of our media and news and entertainment. From HBO to Warner Media to the satellite that carries it into millions of homes and millions of phones. The host of TV's Jeopardy! game show, Alex Trebek, has announced that he has advanced pancreatic cancer, stage 4. He's one of 50,000 Americans who get that diagnosis each year, and as Trebek said in his announcement... The prognosis for this is not very encouraging. But he says he plans to fight this cancer's extremely low survival rate and beat it with the love and support of his family, friends, and viewers. The 78-year-old Trebek says he'll keep working, keep hosting Jeopardy. I have to, he explained, because, quote, under the terms of my contract, I have to host Jeopardy for three more years. 
actor Luke Perry died Monday after a stroke last week. The 52-year-old was sedated for the stroke trauma when he passed. Perry got famous on 90210, played Sideshow Bob's brother on The Simpsons, and played Archie's dad on TV's Riverdale. The CW calls Luke Perry a consummate professional with a giant heart. We also lost actress Katherine Hellman this week, a personal favorite of mine for her brilliant role on the TV comedy Soap. She played a similar role on Who's the Boss as the man-crazy mother. Ms. Hellman was also the team owner on Coach and Patricia Heaton's mom on Everybody Loves Raymond. She was also the hideous woman addicted to plastic surgery in the bizarre Terry Gilliam movie Brazil. Hellman was in three of Gilliam's movies, even playing a seafaring cannibal in Time Bandits. She kicked over a headstone in Alfred Hitchcock's Family Plot. She even appeared in HBO's True Blood. And Catherine Hellman was the voice of Lizzie the Model T in three of the Cars animated movies. She's now gone at 89 after a battle with Alzheimer's. It was severe pneumonia and a blood clot released to her heart that took the life of a 33-year-old contestant on TV's The Voice. Janice Freeman competed in season 13 two years ago. She gained attention with her soulful delivery of the Imagine Dragons hit Radioactive. The music world is also mourning the apparent suicide of prodigy singer Keith Flint. He was found dead at his home in Essex Monday at the age of 49. Quoting group founder Liam Howlett, I'm shell-shocked, effing angry, confused, and heartbroken. Yeah, suicide does that. See earlier story about depression and get help for yourself or anyone else who may need it. The Oscar-winning A Star is Born was back in theaters across the U.S. and Canada this week for an encore that included new extra footage. The extra footage reveals longer versions of Lady Gaga's songs and songs that were left entirely out of the original release. But a Medea family funeral and How to Train Your Dragon 3 virtually tied for first place this week, each making $25 million. Previews, theaters, showtimes, and tickets through the Fandango logo at buzzburbank.com. Uh, yes, I'd like to order a pizza without the next day delivery. FedEx is getting into the pizza delivery business, teaming up with Pizza Hut for a robot delivery system. Outfitted with five wheels and a credit card reader, a delivery box and a camera, little Dickens will roll up to your door with a Pizza Hut pizza or groceries from Walmart or whatever you need from Walgreens, Target, or the auto parts chain AutoZone. The robots start traversing sidewalks and crosswalks this summer in Memphis and other cities. You can no longer buy a cow-tipping t-shirt or a cow-tipping sweatshirt at the Will Rogers World Airport in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. It has been a months-long campaign for Mayor David Holt to get rid of those shirts, which featured the silhouette of an upside-down cow superimposed over the silhouette of the state and the word Oklahoma. In much bigger font, it features the all-caps words, Nothing Tips Like a Cow. An airport spokesman says the shirts were pretty popular for over a decade, but quoting him, the joke has run its course. Cow tipping, by the way, is not a real thing. It's a rural legend that teenage ne'er-do-wells would sneak into a pasture at night and overturn cows when they're sleeping on their feet. Cows don't sleep on their feet. They lay down to sleep. Ergo, cow tipping is not a thing. But it sounds cruel, and the shirts are gone. But the cows get the last laugh today. 
From Berlin, Germany, comes the report of a slaughterhouse worker who was seriously injured when he was kicked in the face by a dead cow's nerve impulse. It happens a lot in the cattle slaughtering game. This guy apparently didn't see this one coming. This is not miniature golf. In Bonita Springs, Florida, a full-sized golfer avoided the water trap penalty when her ball landed in the open mouth of a real-life alligator. What are the odds? She got a mulligan. In mini-golf, it would have made her the winner. Karma moves in mysterious ways, sometimes instant, sometimes long-delayed, but ultimately delivered. Sometimes its paybacks are overwhelming, even deadly. Sometimes it punishes wrongdoers. Sometimes karma smiles on the victims of wrongdoing. Karma can be big or it can be small. And that's why I present this little tale about a subject I normally avoid, lottery winners. In South Carolina, a man stood in line at the KC Mart in Simpsonville to buy his quick pick, Mega Millions lottery ticket, wherein a computer picks a random unplayed combination of numbers. Our guy let another customer cut in line ahead of him, and they too bought a quick pick ticket. The man who allowed the cutter to buy their ticket first has won the $1.6 million in the Mega Millions drawing. Even after taxes, he's a millionaire. Quoting a lottery official, a simple act of kindness led to an amazing outcome. But wasn't the real winner of the lottery that day karma? And finally, if you get the chance to visit Iceland, you really should. A fascinating country with wonderful people and wonders of nature. But don't be like Grandma. Texas grandmother Judith Strang was there with her son Rod when they saw people taking turns having their photos taken on a chunk of ice that was shaped like a throne there on the edge of the water. Being a feisty grandma, Judy tried it herself. She says it looked sturdy, the way people were constantly climbing on and off of it. I thought, well, it looks like fun, she said. But there's more to her story. When I got on it, it started to totter and a wave was coming in. A very large wave came in and kind of made the throne rock and I could tell I was slipping off. The chunk of ice shaped like a throne where Grandma Judith sat had broken away from the icy shoreline and drifted outward. Grandma was floating away into the frigid Atlantic waters off Iceland. She was rescued shortly by a man in a boat who happened to be nearby. A man from Florida. <laughs> I'm Buzz Burbank. Thanks for listening and for supporting this free news at buzzburbank.com. I'll be back next Thursday with another Buzz Burbank news and comment. The preceding presentation was brought to you by The Realm Network.